Hello and welcome to IPE Leaders and Investment, the podcast series from IPE and IPE Real Assets. I'm Liam Kennedy, Editorial Director at IPE, and together with my colleagues from the editorial team, I will be hosting regular conversations with senior figures in the institutional investor community, the people stewarding billions of long-term capital. Leaders and Investment will range across beliefs, objectives, investment philosophy, strategy and outlook, capturing diversity of thinking towards mainstream and alternative investments, both liquid and illiquid. Our conversations will dive into investment governance, strategic and tactical asset allocation, implementation, in-house teams, manager hiring and firing, sustainability, and how to deal with partners and stakeholders. Over the course of our conversations, We hope we'll be creating a valuable library of downloadable insights into what motivates both individuals, teams, boards and trustees as they set about achieving their long-term goals with a view to improving the retirement outcomes of hundreds of millions of pension holders. To access all episodes, please visit our website, ipe.com, or you can find us on leading podcast platforms including Apple, Google and Spotify. Lastly, if you like what you hear, Do tell friends and colleagues, and please let us know what you think by contacting us on podcasts at ipe.com. This episode of Leaders and Investment is sponsored by PGIM. What do you see on the horizon? At PGIM, we can help you rise to the challenges of today, drawing on deep expertise across the world's public and private markets. PGIM Investments, shaping tomorrow, today. Hello, I'm Richard Lowe, editor of IPE Real Assets, and in today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Damien Webb, head of Real Assets and deputy CIO of Aware Super, one of the largest superannuation funds in Australia with around 160 billion Australian dollars in assets. Like many funds in Australia's superannuation system, Aware Super is receiving strong inflows of capital from its members, and the fund is expected to grow to 250 billion Australian dollars in the next five years. And like many Australian super funds, it is a major real assets investor. Damon has been with the organisation for the past decade. When he joined, it was called First State Super, but since then the fund has grown in size and changed its name. Three years ago, First State Super merged with Vic Super, and today Damon oversees an enlarged portfolio of real assets. And so Aware Super increasingly has the advantage of scale when it comes to investing, and it is cash flow positive thanks to the Australian superannuation system meaning it's not short on capital to deploy. Now today we're talking in IPE studio in London and not Sydney, and that's made possible because Damien has recently relocated to the UK. He recently set up Aware Super's European office and from London plans to expand the fund's global direct investment program and asset classes like real estate, infrastructure and private equity. But Aware Super is not alone. Australian Super, the, the largest superannuation fund in Australia, set up shop in the UK several years ago. And the word is other Australian super funds are, are following suit. So Damien, first, welcome to IPE's Leaders Investment Podcast. But second, what is going on? What is behind this move into Europe by the Australians? 
Thank you, Richard. It's uh, absolutely wonderful to be here and thanks to the IPE leaders for the opportunity. It's a really exciting time for Aware Super and uh, I'd love to sort of set the scene a little bit. I think it's important to understand sort of what are the, the main drivers of what's going on in the Australian superannuation system. And then uh, obviously we'll go a step down to what's what's going on with, with Aware Super in particular. I think we're, we're really at a, at a really interesting inflection point in Australian superannuation. It's currently reached about, you know, three and a half trillion dollars in the overall scale of the system. Now, for those that aren't familiar with it, uh, the Australian superannuation system is compulsory. You must contribute from your pay and you have to preserve that uh, for whether you're either 55 and retired or, or 65. Those are sort of some of the, the key rules it's around that preservation. So that's why you're starting to see this, this the system got quite large at the moment. There's two elements to that though that I think drive you know, where Aware Super is right now. The first is that the amount you contribute has been increasing from about 10% to about 12%. or currently at about 11.5% of what you know your, your current salary. You contribute to Super, that's going to grow up by, by another 50 basis points next year and it'll stop at 12%. The second thing that's a really interesting driver uh, is that um, there's consolidation. So the 10 years ago, uh, these numbers are from Deloitte. There are about 380 superannuation funds in Australia of a certain point in scale. And those are broken up between three broad categories. There's corporate funds. So uh, the, you know, the corporate plan you'd expect to in the, old, in the olden days. And there's uh, these, these retail funds, for-profit funds, typically you know, bank-owned funds. And then there's the funds that I represent uh, for Aware Super, which is these not-for-profit funds uh, or profit-for-member funds. And so you know, 10 years ago, there was about 330, actually, 330 of those funds about 100 in the corporate space, about 133 in the retail space, and about 97 in the, in the not-for-profit space. Fast forward to now, and they've, they've come down about 60% over time. So there's about 133 funds now. There's only about 20 left in the corporate space. So they've, they've really... Uh, they've really shrunken. Uh, and then there's about 57 left in the retail space and about 56, the not-for-profit. Uh, and so what you're seeing is this merger activity. So you're seeing organic growth around the superannuation guarantee contributions, but you're also seeing a lot of activity uh, around the, the mergers. And Australian uh, Aware Super has been a fairly, a fairly meaningful merge with other funds. So we're now at about $160 billion in overall scale. Uh, we, we have plans to get to about $250 billion over the next, you know, that sort of 2030, give or take. And so that's leading us to really think a lot about how we want to manage our assets. That then brings you to Europe, into London to make direct investments, to take advantage of that scale that you mentioned. Yeah, that's right, Richard. So, so I think um, you know we've done a lot of thinking and planning for you know for how we want our future to, to play out, and there are a number of things that have really fed into that. And again, I might just run through that because it really you know that context it really determines our strategy. Uh, and there's a corporate strategy which I won't have time to go into today, but I really want to talk about the investment strategy that led us to this point in time. And then we can talk a bit more about how we're looking to to set ourselves up and invest. The key point for us is is within that context that I described in superannuation, you, you really do need to be a top performer. So we're targeting uh, top five performance. There are league tables in Australia. So you want to be uh, a fund that is attracting flows. Um, you know, you can't leave the system, but you can. Uh, it's defined contribution. We mark to market daily uh, and you can take your superannuation to, to other funds if you wish to. So it is important to be competitive and put forward a really compelling proposition. So it has to be, you know, top returns. That's the number one thing for us, the investment team. Uh, we've also got to be compelling uh, value for members. So the 
fees are actually really important. We report on the fees, they are compared uh, and contrasted. And, and, and so performance and fees are really, are really critical. The other thing for us is we want a compelling uh, employee value proposition. We want to continue to build and uplift our approach to responsible ownership. You know, it's not just how we invest, but it's also about the, the impact we leave on, on the communities in which we invest and how we invest our members' money. It's really critical to us. So um, our element of responsible ownership is a key part of our strategy. And again, boiling all that down at a scale of $250 billion, which we want to leverage and, and make sure that we're making the best of that scale, we've also got a strong view that we want about half of our assets managed internally by internal teams and about half of those assets at $250 billion managed externally. So it's still very much a hybrid uh, investment strategy. But at $250 billion um, with half of your assets managed internally, particularly in the private market space of property, infrastructure, private equity, you really do need to have a, an expanded sourcing network. So that leads us to sort of have an office now that we're opening up in, in London uh, to be the base of our international expansion strategy uh, in those three markets. Uh, and then we'll look to other markets in time. But it's really that point around planning for our future, planning for our context to be a successful fund uh, and, and, and realizing that you know, it's a really strong opportunity for us to deliver it at scale and have people on the ground. Why now? What's behind the timing of that move to Europe? It is absolutely um, now around um, the scale which, which we see ourselves. So we're currently about a, sitting at around $160 billion Australian. We have about 110 people, uh, investment professionals in the investment team. Uh, we're looking to grow that to, to sort of a, you know, about 200 over time. Um, but I think we're at the point of scale now and sophistication uh, where, and, and again, we know that there's a long lead time to set up uh, these offices and these networks. And uh, we've, we've done a lot of benchmarking to, to other funds, North American funds, some of the European and some of the Asian funds and some of the Australian funds. Uh, and so now is the time really for us to, to make that move. We've done a lot of um, planning, uh, but now is the time to execute on that plan and, and, and get those additional sourcing networks in place. And how do you see the opportunity today in Europe, I guess, across private markets that you're that you're looking? Yeah, look, we had um, we actually had the, the head of property um, uh, in town last week, um, and so it was a terrific opportunity to connect with um, the local pension funds and some of the the other offshore pension funds and fund managers that are, have locations here in the UK. Um, our head of private equity has relocated at the middle of this year. So we're getting lots of good market intelligence through the office already. Um, and we'll be standing up the, the infrastructure function, you know, really soon. Um, but we've got a lot of, lot of good market intelligence. Now, I still think probably that the key thing for us is that um, London remains, you know, a really strong location to, to, to launch an international strategy. Um, I know there certainly were some, some, some questions internally around what was the best location to do? Was it a North American office or a European office? We, we were of the strong opinion that, um, that a European office was a good first base of operations and that London was, was still, you know, a good base to launch that from. Um, so for us, I think, you know, you then uh, overlay what is happening in the world, what is happening in investment markets. And we are continue to think that now, you know, we weren't doing this to necessarily time the markets. That wasn't part of our strategy to be opportunistic or anything like that. This is obviously a long-term uh, play for us. Yep. Um, but I think if you, if you overlay the, the, the tactical element of it at the moment, it, do, it is a good time to, to be arriving into this marketplace um, to be, you know, under allocated broadly to these private markets um, strategic allocations. 
emissions, you know, modestly. Uh, it is a good time for us in the sense that we don't have any major issues in our portfolios, and I'll get into that more later. We don't have any legacy issues that are tying us down. And so we're here with, you know, meaningful amounts of capital to deploy. And, you know, I'll get into a bit more in a moment, but I think the opportunity set is looking, you know, particularly attractive. Um, we're not in a rush, though. I think the main, main observation from our meetings last week uh, was that you know there are still there's still some time for some of these valuation impacts to work through the marketplace. So, but all in all, it's it's a good time uh, to 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 be a provider of capital in in, in this uh, in this market. Yeah, yeah, because it's certainly it's not a time without challenges. Certainly in terms of inflation politics at the moment, and uh, and you've alluded to I guess some of the issues that investors have around you know the denominator effect and being over allocated to the asset class uncertainty around valuations from one perspective it's an interesting time to be investing but it's also a challenging one as well yeah look this might sound a bit glib, but it, it always seems to be a challenging time you know i i, I don't think in my in my career i've, I've necessarily stuck my head above the parapet and said, there are no risks. Everything is clear. You know, everything is amber. Everything is green, I should say. We, we now need to pile in. You know, there's always, there's always risks. And and I think just talking about the political dimension a bit at the moment, I, I don't actually see that the political risk here in this, in this region or in this country is necessarily overly inflated compared to other issues we see in other parts of the world, whether it be our own or whether it would be North America. Political risk, sovereign risk, uh, it feeds into all of our, our calculus and all of our calculations. And some, sometimes you can price it pretty well, other times you, know, you struggle to price it uh, accurately. But again, I will say that there are some elements that are that we think are still quite positive. For example, um, you know, we we found certainly that um, the UK government um, has been very welcoming uh, of our of our entity and our organisation, and that continues to be the case. So we've been very pleased with the support and and the um, you know the, the concierge service has been afforded to us. That that's been they've been very very generous and welcoming. I think that. Um, we felt a strong values alignment, uh, particularly with the UK. Uh, you know, for us, you know, climate change and getting our carbon footprint down to net zero by 2050 is is literally of, of the utmost uh, paramount importance. Um, and we felt a strong alignment there. Now, I know obviously at the moment there's some debate uh, around that, but um, but I'm assured that you know that there is still strong alignment to, to those those net zero outcomes and 2030 check-in points, which which means a, a lot a lot to us. And that obviously aligns to the investment case around the energy transition space and the opportunity here, which I still think is, is very, very strong. So I think that the political risk is certainly is certainly there. Um, uh, I also think some of the issues you, we see, uh, which we can help provide solutions, things like, uh, you know, the, the crisis around affordable housing and the supply of quality, you know, housing for people. That is an issue you see, again, all around the world. And we've got some good reasons behind how we've got some capability for that in Australia. So, so I think that um, the political dimension in all markets, you know, is there. It's present. It always will be. It's something that needs to be understood. We take advice on that as well. And we, you know, we, we craft our strategy accordingly. You mentioned political risk. I mean, governments have increasingly been looking to attract more institutional capital into infrastructure. And I guess you've, you'll have much experience of this in Australia. And the UK has been particularly vocal about wooing more private investment into, into its economy and, and infrastructure. But I guess you know, certainly what we hear from some investors is that the, the appetite for that sort of investment is there. It's just finding those opportunities and, and making those available 
And I guess, you know, we've seen in certainly in the, the headlines recently with the UK and the recent U-turn on the HS2 rail project, although that was publicly funded. But it certainly raises um, questions about, I suppose, UK as an infrastructure investment opportunity. What's your sort of latest thinking? Yeah, look, I, I think it links to my, my previous comment before, Richard. I, I, I think that um, the, the deliberations around that, you know, this is not uncommon for, for, for any of the markets which we're operating in. Um, as I said, there's lots of dynamics in the North American market. There's lots of dynamics in, in the Australian market as well uh, and, and in other markets as well. It, it's just one one element that feeds through to, to how we think about things. As I said, at a high level, we still feel very aligned to the values and the principles of, of the, the UK um, strategy and, and obviously we're mindful that there's an election coming up as well and again you know we're, we're, we're mindful that um, we want to make sure that you know that uh, we're aligned to, to the outcomes or whatever that they may be um, look our investment, our investment strategy is, is is seeking to not not overly rely upon you know government support in either way certainly we want to see it aligned at a higher level certainly uh, we want to be um, working you know with the flow not against it I think that's a, that's a major red flag but within that you know I think the, the investment strategy which we've stood up in Australia if you're looking to stand up here in the UK I'll, I'll give you some examples so we have the largest uh, which we, which we think is one of the largest um, key worker affordable housing programs in Australia we've done that um, even though that's a real focus point for for state and federal governments and there are some programs in place we've largely done that without any government support in Australia. It's certainly consistent with the outcomes that the governments, uh, the state and federal are seeking to achieve, but we've done that on our own initiative as a private investor uh, working with developers and creating our own platforms to, to put together one of the largest um, pipelines in, in Australia, for, for specifically for key workers. Um, equally, we've just announced a, a platform in Australia uh, called Birdwood that's really looking at distributed energy. You know, we, we were a big investor in industrial scale and utility scale um, uh, renewable energy, but we also think there's a real opportunity there um, to look at a smaller scale, uh, but scalable um, distributed energy platforms, whether it's smaller scale um, renewable energy plus batteries plus storage. Um, th those are huge opportunities. Again, you can do those, I think, largely uh, working within the regulatory construct as it stands. Um, uh, so I think I think there are certainly some things that you know you'd love to see you know better planning for the release of land, better zoning, uh, better you know that those are things which which we see in all markets and 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 I think we just need to be realistic about them. But we still think you know there's a huge opportunity for us to to work with the the trend uh, and stand up our investment program. Yeah, yeah. Other risks, I guess, seeing inflation has um, certainly exacerbated a, a cost of living crisis. You, you mentioned housing and, and energy. The affordability of, of both of these are becoming an issue. Um, also, I guess, at a time when institutional ownership of such assets is probably at an all-time high. So I guess this, this brings up some implications. First, sort of greater risk around political regulatory intervention, but also the, the, the second challenge for the, the S in ESG, so that the social aspect um, is this something you're you're paying consideration to, uh, perhaps in terms of the perceptions of, of your members on, on where their retirement capital is being invested, and is it being used to make a, a positive impact as well as providing a financial return? Uh, yeah, look, Richard, absolutely. I, I think that um, I mentioned at the start um, that you know an absolute critical element of our investment strategy, you know, beyond just the returns and, and the fees, is is how we invest and how we carry ourselves. You know, we have one point one million members. 
uh, in Australia who, who, who are our members and that they are predominantly drawn from the nursing teaching um, uh, sectors, uh, to name just, just two of the larger cohorts. Um, they, they tend to be, um, by the nature of those two workforces, um, predominantly female. Uh, and so they, they really care and they're carers of our society. And so we have a members first philosophy, being a profit for member fund, that we are absolutely aligned to what, what they seek to achieve. Uh, and so I think um, we will continue to, to, to stand up in the UK and overseas uh, and invest our, our, their, their monies uh, in, in programs that matter to them. Um, <clears throat> recently, we, we, we were a material investor in, in the Get Living transaction, which is a, a large you know, PRS bill to rent developer in the UK. And that has a strong program, which I think is, is appropriate, which is p- providing, you know, good quality lodgings, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a bill to rent, private rental uh, capacity. And then there'll certainly be consideration for, for affordable housing as, as a part of some of those developments as well. So I think that's, that's really aligned to what we're seeking to do. And, and I think they're great returns uh, and, and good risk profile as well. I think the other element, you know, is for us is just, we might talk about this a bit later, is just how do we get our assets down to net zero by 2050? That's a big challenge. We're putting, you know, material heft and energy into how we do that. I'll begin to talk about that a bit later. The other element I think is just, you know, we're, we're very, very focused on the diversity, equity and inclusion issues. Uh, we're very focused on governance issues. So you're going to see us being very, very um, leading and, and a real strong advocate uh, for how we govern our assets, that which we have governance stakes here in the UK. Um, we take board diversity principles incredibly strongly. So I think you'll see us really um, stand behind the, the S uh, in the ESG. And, and that is absolutely aligned to, to what our members would want for us. And they they, they care very much about that. You mentioned net zero. I mean, that's obviously climate change is probably the most perhaps overwhelming risk um, facing, well, everyone really, but also investors. It's clear we need to think both about mitigation, whether that's decarbonizing assets and, and net zero targets, but also adaptation in the form of ad- adapting to, to the physical risks of climate change and pricing in those risks um, in terms of floods, storms, extreme heat, etc. And at the same time, I guess we've got these regulatory efforts to encourage sustainable investing and prevent greenwashing. And we have an entire sort of industry built around disclosure and reporting in this in this area. How do you see the the institutional investment in industry and how it's its collective efforts to address climate change? How is that going from your perspective? But also, I suppose, what's Aware Super's focus on this area at the moment? What what what's sort of key? It's it's a huge it's a huge field. Um, and you know I've got a lot of views on that. Probably probably too much at the moment. We have a terrific um, responsible investment team uh, led by Lisa McDonald at Aware Super, and we've 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 um, I think led very strongly in some of these areas. So certainly I think you know just just quickly regulatory disclosure. I think there could be much better alignment for that. But again, I think we're also wanting to be very proactive and pragmatic. So I think I think we need to fix that up and get greater alignment and reporting, uh, but I don't think it necessarily should wait for that to be done, you know. Uh, and, and I want to talk more about the pragmatic side at the moment. So so again, we've we've created a team internally, um, the, the, the direct assets oversight enhancement team. Uh, and I want to talk about that a moment as well, because I think that's a real, real um, key benefit for how we're be moving beyond uh, being a, you know, a financial sponsor to being a, a more well-rounded 
sponsor for, for, for investments across the private market space. But one real key element for that team, it, it is there to assist the, the investment managers of the teams and also to the, you know, work with it within the strategy set by our responsible investment team around how we can get the whole 160 billion to, to, to net zero and, and the check-in points at 2030. Um, but we own these assets, um, as I mentioned before, some assets where we govern themselves, govern them directly. So we have, you know, we appoint non-executive directors, uh, we appoint management teams. Those assets, you know, we, we don't necessarily rely upon in the GP community or fund managers. We've got a portfolio ones that we do um, but we, those are ones we need to directly influence around how we need to get them to net zero and so we have it's probably the, the you know the, one of the top three KPIs uh, for the investment teams this year um, which is to stand up how we're going to get our direct assets or assets we have direct government stakes on to to net zero and so there are there are live conversations in the boardrooms of all the assets that we own, with all the CEOs, with all the non-executive directors uh, around the fact that this is a you know a, a critical pressing issue. And while we have done a lot of great work to to set the strategy and agree how we want to get to 2030 and 2050, um, the the key points we now need is we now need to, to 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 flow that down to these individual businesses themselves. They need to be having discussions around well, if we need to uh, get to that, you know, what what does this cost? What does this spend? How to run how do our fellow shareholders feel about that? Yeah, so I think that that really right now it's now getting down to the operational phase of, of net zero, of which you know is absolutely critical. But we've created a, a team internally; it's early days yet. But there to work with our, our portfolio businesses to help them achieve that. Some some portfolio businesses are incredibly, you know, they're large businesses, multi-billion-dollar um, EVs, enterprise values. They've got um, very deep management teams and boards, and they've got capacity to do this themselves. And they tend to be businesses with a low carbon footprint. Those aren't the ones we necessarily worry about. Those can get to net zero in a fairly straightforward way. Um, what we're more focused on is the assets that have you know a real asset or a hard base. You know, they might be in agriculture. Um, they might be doing a lot of development. Uh, you know, using a lot of um, you know materials. Um, they might have you know subject matter experts internally that are very great at at growing um, their, their produce on the farm or, or developing, but they don't have the capabilities to get to net zero. And so this team is working with our portfolio companies working with the directors to help them you know make that transition and make and have the conversations to make the hard decisions to do that um, and so I think that is a really live element and so I think where there's been a lot of conversation around what is the strategy I think there's a lot of conversation on how do you benchmark and compare and contrast that's all great what we're really um, wanting to move forward with you know probably you know quite quite aggressively this year and next is we need to get our portfolio companies having these conversations and moving making making actual changes in their business together yeah and the the real estate asset class as well has a has a lot to do in terms of decarbonizing it's obviously one of the the, the big um contributors to carbon emissions um so there's potential for retrofitting assets and, and things like that but also at the moment valuations are fairly uncertain so it's it's a it's a complicated picture in terms of investing in 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 real estate and also looking at decarbonisation strategies. I think that there's two elements to that. Look, we, we don't have much in the way of, uh, in fact, we have zero office and retail exposure internationally. We have some residual in Australia and we've certainly already been on that. So so we've focused on, uh, you know, six star, green star, you know, high energy rating. So I think, I think if you've got a large portfolio now and you're going to be talking about that, I think you've probably got some challenges ahead of you. So I think we've already, you know, made the portfolio decisions around that. We've put more money into things that we think are new generation and resilient. We've moved away from a portfolio point of view from things that 
um, are not there that need a lot of capital works because the price needs to adjust, which it's doing at the moment. Where, where now, the second point, um, and we've done a lot of work on, on the living space and developing that uh, in, our, in our build to rent strategies and our, our seniors living strategies and our key worker strategies, that we've already factored in the development pipeline of how we get that and we put that into the feasibilities. The, the next bit though is what, what's the investment opportunity? Uh, and, and I think that is where, you know, we're being a bit patient, but I think that there is a huge opportunity um, to, to look at uh, repurposing, but the price needs to adjust. We're clearly not there yet. Uh, I give the example that when we were looking to, to find our, you know, relatively modest space here in London uh, for about 40 desks for our, for, our, for our investment staff, it was really competitive to get, you know, uh, an office space that was, uh, you know, that met our corporate strategy of, you know, highly efficient um, uh, in, in, a, in a desirable location in London. It was, it was competitive and we pay, we're paying a, a decent rent. Um, so I think there's absolutely demand there. Um, uh, and, and I think, though, that there's an opportunity set. And probably the, what we're mulling and working through with our peers and, and with, the, with the GP community is um, how does that reworking, how does that, um, how, what is the right price, what is the opportunity set for the repurposing of the older stock that needs to be, to be, to be made to meet demands? Yeah. And how are you finding in your sort of early conversations in, in Europe any sort of reflections on, on some of the local investors, the, you know, the domestic institutions and other, and other global investors who are, are positioned here? What's the sort of feeling on, on the ground that you're getting? The mansion house reforms is one thing that comes to mind, uh, and I'm 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 going to be contributing um, to a to a panel soon uh, through the Lord Mayor's office uh, around um, seeking to get uh, particularly private equity investment up for for the local pension schemes, and so uh, myself and some Canadian funds, so some Australian funds, and some Canadian funds have been used as you know, case studies. Both funds have completely different contexts. So the Canadians are typically defined benefit, we're defined contribution, but we're we're very proactive on, on the private market space. And so I think my view there is that I'm really keen to, to sort of be supportive. There's a number of great funds. Uh, again, I'm on a, another panel in future with, uh, with, a, with a couple of funds that seem to be growing very, very well, uh, that have really, you know, really um, robust strategies for, for property and infrastructure. Uh, and private equity. Um, I, I think that in coming into this this space, we, we would love to be a co-investor, love to be a collaborator with with the local schemes, um, and certainly we're very happy to share. You know, our journey and what our trustees, I guess, worried about, were concerned about, uh, were focused about in terms of you know how we over the last ten years have got now private markets allocations from relatively modest amounts up to sort of, you know, meaningful amounts. So, you know, less than 10% up to sort of north of 30% in the last sort of five years. And there's pros and there's cons of that. And so I think, you know, we're, we're really here to help um, help share that journey. Uh, you know, as I said, it wasn't a straight line for us. We, we certainly did a lot of things right. We did a lot of things that we learned from. Uh, and it's about to, to wanting to share those. And, and again, I think the focus on the Mansion House reforms is, is a really, really good one. And, and again, if there's actually other schemes here um, that can come and best, I think it's a great thing to do. You've been with Aware Super for for a decade now. How how would you do, sort of describe your philosophy, your you know your investment approach, and to to that role? And I guess have have, have you learned any lessons over, over that decade that has maybe changed the way you do things or or informed decisions and strategies going forward? I think the number one thing that that's that's held me and the fund in good stead was a strong preparedness to be different, 
a, a strong preparedness to be different from, from the peer group and, and a strong preparedness to look at new ways of investing and to have a portfolio that was different from the pack. Um, you know, again, I reference, we, we have a standout property uh, performance, you know, that, that, that was there, you know, we, when, when we arrived in sort of 2013, we had a, a fairly institutional mix of, uh, you know, 40% office, 40% retail and 20% industrial because that was the benchmark and that was deemed as low risk. We, we took the view at the time um, that that actually was a really high risk position, not because of peer risk, the peer risk was low, but the valuation risk and the price risk was high. And so, um, you know, it takes a long time to, to move those portfolios around, but through strong deliberation, you know, we are here today with a, with a portfolio that's 44% living, I think almost um, 22% industrial and then the rest, uh, probably think 27% industrial and, and then the rest is, is, is split between office uh, and retail. So a very different portfolio. Obviously, that's held us in good stead. Uh, and I think, you know, um, an ability to take on things like complex uh, planning problems, sites with issues that we're prepared to, to take a total return view on and, 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 and not have any income return for the first five years uh, and take on development risks. So, and then I could think about, you know, infrastructure in particular. Again, we, we were very happy. You know, we, we thought that there was a lot of really great assets in, in the hard asset space. We were quite happy to, to spend our time hunting in, um, in, in the intangible, but you know, assets that, that were essential services, were, had monopoly characteristics, had inflation protections on the, on, the, on the cash flows, again, held us in really good stead in the last five years. And those are things like um, land registries uh, in Australia in particular, uh, leaning into the, the take private opportunity set. Um, and again, private equity has also uh, been a real leader in seeking, um, you know, a higher returning strategy, really leaning into the venture capital space uh, and being different from the peers and, and, and looking for smaller funds where they can get more direct governance on, on the LPACs and, and, and help, you know, influence that strategy. And they've, again, had a really strong performance outcome. So I think, I think you know, one thing for me is just to, to be, be different, to be creative, uh, to, to enjoy what you're doing. What goes with that, though, is that you need to be absolutely absolutely aligned internally with what you're doing. Because if you are going to be different, there'll be times when it's challenging. And I think, you know, we learned lessons along the way, but I think absolutely making sure that you're, you know, your peers, your, your, you know, your internal team, uh, your various uh, support functions, whether it's tax, legal, responsible investments, uh, risk, uh, and most importantly, the trustees. That the trustees, you've given them a chance to, to really buy into the strategy at the start. It's very difficult to, to show them something that's really off the beaten track when they're, you know, out of the blue, you know, with no, with no warm up. So I think, you know, doing your strategy work, doing really focus on your sector verticals, be really clear what you want to do. And if you want to be different, which I think you should, um, you know, make sure you, you bring your internal stakeholders on the journey. I guess the last 10 years certainly been characterized by low interest rates and, a, and a, a pretty widespread move into private markets, unlisted, you know, assets um, by institutional investors relatively globally. Um, and things obviously have, have changed with um, rates now going up, We've seen bond yields going up as well. So there is a question over, you know, the relative attractiveness of, of some of these asset classes versus fixed income. How are you seeing that that picture evolving? I mean, one, 
yourselves aware super but also the broader asset allocation across um, institutional markets yeah look uh, I, I think that um, the opportunity set it is somewhat balanced I think at the moment our current stance is that we're we're hewing pretty closely to our strategic asset allocation framework I think there's some some slight um, some slight biases, but but nothing nothing material. We, we've we have had um, you know some 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 decent fixed income allocation. So I clearly um, the, the the pricing has improved uh, over the last period of time. I think we're just drilling down into it. So I think our stance at a strategic level, you know, it, it is balanced. Uh, and I think right now um, with the, the uncertainty as there always is, that you know the diversification is still very much our friend and. Um, and we obviously focus a lot on, on on the life cycle journey for our members and making sure they're in the appropriate fund for their for their risk profile and their age group. So that's that's something we do a lot of work on. I think also um, we're still some ways off from seeing the real cresting of, of retirees versus workers, but it's it's a very strong debate in Australia around um, making sure that our retirement income products as an industry are better. Uh, and we're doing a lot of work on on on, on products for retirement space for that that crest of wave that is coming, you know, for us a bit further out than some of our uh, some of our peers in, in, in the North American markets. Within strategies, though, I'm, I'm seeing some clear some clear biases at the moment. I think, um, again, I'm probably a little bit biased from having done the rounds with with our head of property last week, but there does seem to be a, a particularly large opportunity set in in property at the moment. Um, I, I think that there is a you know quite a significant mismatch in in the in the supply of opportunities and the and the and the capital provided. Um, we are a capital provider, but we're seeing other groups that um, are on sidelines at the moment. Um, and, and so I think that is going to be a particularly rich opportunity set for investment in the coming years. Unlike other turning points in cycles, though, I don't think you need to rush into it. And I think that um, the valuation and the pricing to which you alluded is still washing through. Um, but certainly for us, we see it as particularly, the pipeline is building you know, very materially there. I think in infrastructure, it's relatively balanced. I think that the, you know, for, for high quality assets there, there's still, there's still good demand. Um, so I think there's an opportunity set that it's interesting for us, particularly in the, in the digital infrastructure space, particularly in the energy transition space. Those are two sectors we're gonna you know, focus on in the UK and, and Europe. But again, I, I don't see a massive mismatch. You know, I, I think there's good opportunities. There's there's good capital there. Private equity, um, I think, similar, more like property. There, there's an opportunity building there for um, higher quality opportunities. Um, there, there's some good capital, but I think that there is there is um, less capital for for private equity and venture in particular um, than there has been in the past. And I think that's uh, again moving into more of a, an interesting investment environment for us. But again doesn't seem to be a massive rush to have to reallocate its point in time, but it's certainly building over the next six to 12 months. And we haven't really talked about technology, which I think is mm. a key issue. AI has been in the headlines recently, and there's been a huge amount of development there. Technology has a really disrupted real estate in a, in a number of ways already. So are, are you looking at technology and thinking about how it might affect Aware Super, um, whether in terms of investments and also the, the organization itself yeah we absolutely are um, our, our CEO um, is is very much a proponent of us making sure that as, as leaders as executives that we are spending you know every day you know thinking about AI um, there's one 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 initiative internally we're just about to roll out a um, 
uh, an AI engine uh, that has you know some safety around you know being able to look at our policies and procedures and our internal information and IP to be able to probe that and then that stays you know safely quarantined and ring fenced and that's going to be on everyone's computer. So there is a, you know we're really leading into you know making sure that people spend a portion of their day you know to get to get um, Chat GPT or, or whichever you know large language model you want to use um, into 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 your daily coaching approach. And so I think organisationally. We are absolutely leaning into making sure that um, you know that we're using it and that we're 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 um, experienced at, at, at using it ourselves internally. Um, I think we've also um, at probably early days, but I think we've absolutely spending time as an investment house looking at what are the opportunities. There was a research day um, done uh, in Sydney and uh, Melbourne just recently where uh, a lot of speakers came together with an emphasis, uh, certainly on the private equity and equity opportunity set uh, around you know how how can AI um, you know improve that that landscape we certainly see it as an enabler uh, as well and so uh, there's opportunities for us to look at it that way but I, I think as an organization we're trying to really lean into into the the benefits and the uplift of AI and and certainly our future strategy is absolutely looking at it uh, some good cases in point is is you know we have a strong uh, business that provides advice to our members um, and certainly we're always keeping an open mind to how, how AI can really drive that um, and then again you know how can it really impact both up and downside uh, our investment portfolios what are the key things keeping you awake at night the big challenges I guess going forward over the over the next um, few years for yourself in the West super I've got the benefit I'm the deputy CIO but my, my new role now I was the head of real assets I'm now the head of international so so I think probably uh, what's focusing my mind uh, is standing up the office successfully um, this is a big investment for aware super uh, it's our first office overseas um, uh, as you know as you said at the start you know there is um, Australian super has, has established themselves here over the, over the years and there are other funds here that are looking to do so so we're you know we're, we're at the vanguard of, of Australian superannuation funds doing that absolutely um, so, you know, my mind is absolutely taken up with the, the fact that, you know, we're transferring a number of people from our head office in Sydney and Melbourne over here and we're hiring a bunch of people uh, locally as well, which is really, you know, really exciting. And then we're growing that from about 14 people we're looking to have in the office, you know, by the time we launch uh, later this year uh, to sort of circa late 20s, you know, early 30s, you know, in, in a couple of years time. Um, and then we'll look to sort of other other markets, should they make sense and should our growth be there? You know, North America might be another office for us. So so I am, I, I'm, I'm cognizant, I'm mindful of the investment risk, I'm mindful of the, the world economy. Um, again, I think we have the benefit of, of this being a you know, from a contrarian point of view, the opportunity set is, is building. It is not, you know, detracting from us. We're, we're, we're well set in that regard. So I'd say I'm more focused operationally at the moment of making sure the office comes together well, that our people are supported um, and that, you know, that we're representing ourselves well and that the people, you know, locally, you know, want, want to work with us. Um, I think, you know, that, that um, that's a real key focus for me. Uh, and as I said, we're investing a lot in ourselves internally, not just in terms of investment capability, but also, you know how we're supporting our assets um, post acquisition on an operational side through that additional team I mentioned at the end, the, the direct assets oversight and enhancement team. It's a really key part to make us, you know, a strong financial investor, but also a really strong operational investor. Uh, and I think that's something that we're going to continue to do. Great. Well, thank you, Damien. I think that's been a really interesting conversation. And thanks for your time. I'm very happy to be here, Richard. And thank you very much. And look forward to uh, to, to to the next few years. Thank you. Thank you for listening to IPE Leaders and in Investment, the podcast series from IPE and IPE Real Assets. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode. To access all of the episodes, please visit our website, ipe.com, where you can find us on leading podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. If you like what you've heard, please do tell friends and colleagues, and let us know what you think by contacting us on podcasts at ipe.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. PGIM Investments, shaping tomorrow, today.